as a storyteller, he is an artist in that sense. He is crafting stories that have sort of imaginative world building capacities. Like what if the world were like this? And what if the kingdom were like that? And what if God were, you know, this merciful? So all the stories, you know, sower, weeds, mustard, you know, seed, the Samaritan, the hidden treasure, net lost sheep, all those, he, he is a storyteller. And the, the point that I tell my students is that Jesus employs stories not because he is condescending to a, a primitive society that needed uh, lesser forms of communication. And, and if they were just all more smart and capable and enlightened, he could have just used prose the whole time. But the point is story can do something, can say things, can figure out reality through figurative means. In, in a way that you couldn't say any other way. So you tell stories in a way that convey the truth of the character and nature of God, the character and nature of what it means to be human, the character and nature of the world, uh, not despite the story, not beyond the story, but through the story. Stages. Welcome, bienvenue to episode 62, that's episode 62 of the Jolly Thoughts podcast. Um, I'm joining you today, I'm recording this little preamble just a few days away from uh, a pretty large date in my calendar, which is Imagine Arts Fest, the uh, Imagine 24, which is this is going to be our fourth annual iteration of this Arts Fest uh, that's hosted uh, at the church where I serve, Moncton Wesleyan Church in Moncton, New Brunswick. Canada. First couple iterations of this, you'll actually hear this in the, the podcast conversation, but we're online, but we're kind of, we actually, for the last couple of years, this will be the second time that we've been able to have kind of physical uh, gallery spaces associated with that. And that physicality, that kind of reification, this kind of taking it from just ones and zeros online and making it something that people can get close to, sometimes even touch, uh, is actually probably a, a really important recurring theme in the conversation that I'm about to share with you with uh, W. David O. Taylor, who we'll just call David. Uh, the W and the O will just kind of magically disappear from this point forward. Um, it's a great wide-ranging conversation that really kind of, uh, a little bit unusual for me, it centers around a couple of questions. I actually asked a couple of questions in advance, not at random, uh, but very much uh, on purpose to kind of steer towards certain aspects of uh, David's research. He's got a, he's done a lot of research in a lot of different areas, uh, worship studies, uh, systematic theology, uh, but also the arts. Uh, and so the book in particular that we talk about is Glimpses of the New Creation, subtitled Worship and the Formative Power of the Arts. Um, and so it coincided relatively well with the as I mentioned, Arts Fest that I'm about to kind of go through. Um, so I hope that you'll find this conversation helpful, uh, instructive. It is kind of a little bit esoteric and highfalutin sometimes. You know, we're asking questions like, what are arts? What are aesthetics? How do they matter to maybe uh, the church? How, what, do they, what do they mean to even individuals? But what kind of surprised me looking back is that we kept bringing these kind of like disembodied uh, philosophical queries back down to earth. We kept making uh, the, the, the question become something real, something tangible, uh, something touchable. Um, and so for me, this is, was an incredibly helpful uh, conversation. I hope that it will be uh, for you as well. So without any further ado, I share with you the conversation that I was pleased to have with 
David Taylor. So uh, you're th- you're thick. Hey, I got a book here. It's it's called, uh, it's called Glimpses of a New. Oh my! Oh, why is my? There it you says, go. Glimpses <laughs> of the New Creation: uh, Worship and the Formative Power of the Arts. Uh, and I mean, I've been seeing your stuff pop up for for a long time, um, and then but this this book in particular just seemed like oh, this is going to really hit home for what we're doing with mm. uh, the worship, uh, mm-hmm. the arts festival mm-hmm. working yes. on a good name for it so this is the fourth year that i've done it at this local church where i serve here in moncton new brunswick and we call it imagine arts fest so it launched in 2020 do you remember 2020 man what a <laughs> weird and wacky time um that was, that was a multiverse <laughs> so it was kind of in the in the um this the spring of that as we're kind of trying to come out of it. So I, the idea, the idea in my mind launched in 2020, we didn't do our first one until 2021. Uh, and so basically when we started thinking about it, we just said like, has there ever been a time, uh, that you felt like you've needed to imagine, mm. uh, a brighter world, mm. you know, more hope, mm-hmm. uh, than, than now. And so that was really just yeah. the, the kind of framing for it. We just gave people the opportunity from kind of within our church, but then also within a broader community just, to, and it was, you know, it, it wasn't a, wasn't it overly didactic space? Like it wasn't, hey, come and, and show your your Jesus art at church. It was just very much of like, let's create a space where people from within and without our church uh, to be able to kind of just come That's together. Right. And That's so, right. however, uh, I don't know what Texas was like at that point in time, but in Moncton, where I live, the world was shut down. So really yeah. for the first two years, it was a, it was an online only event, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Uh, and so last year we, we blew it up and were able to actually have like a in-person uh, like a physical gallery space yeah. where people could walk around in our church oh, and then wonderful. we had a live event. And then this is going to be the second iteration of okay. that. And yeah. so each year, you know, since the beginning, we've kind of given some kind of a prompt. Yeah. Just something, if it's like, Hey, it, it's, we don't tend to, we're not large enough that we turn away art that doesn't, that doesn't align <laughs> specifically with the theme. Uh, so, hey, good, good art is good art. It's welcome. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and we could talk more about what good art is. But if you're looking to create something specifically, we want to give you yeah. something to kind of move off of. The theme that we use this year is, and I wish I had my bracelet with me. I think it's out of reach, but was what, uh, what would Jesus underscore mm. ellipsis blank, mm-hmm. whatever you want to say. Yeah. So like visually it represented for a lot of people who, if you, if you spent time in the evangelical church yeah. or you've read the, you know, the classic novel in his steps, yes. your next move is going to be, well, do. So what would Jesus do? But, right. but we kind of explained down and said, okay, well, if it's from the art world, you know, what would Jesus dance? What yeah. would Jesus write? What right. would Jesus uh, sing? Right. Like the, and so it kind of made people think, if Jesus was an artist. And so I sent you some questions in advance yeah. and this is one that is kind of out of left field, possibly yeah. in some respects, and we might answer it. We might completely uh, squash it. We might circle back towards it. It might be yeah. a bookend. I don't know, but yeah. the, with all your research, and this is certainly something that you have thought of before. Yeah. So the question is, was Jesus, and I say was carefully here, the person, the human of Jesus, when yeah. he walked upon the yes. earth, was Jesus an artist? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the simple answer is yes. Uh, it is also 
slightly a complicated answer because it depends on what we mean by art and what we mean by artist. So I, one of the courses that I teach at Fuller Seminary is on the vocation of artists. And so, you know, we do you know, historical study, biblical, theological, um, you know, contemporary. And one of the things I, I get the students to do is to unpack the meaning of words and where do words come from? And so I think it's helpful for students to understand that the word art today, in at least the English language, is polyvalent. Right? We, we say things like the art of war, and that's different than the art of Andy Warhol. But the word art of war actually has a, an older um, rootage uh, because the term would go back to Latin and Greek terms from which we get like techne or skill or ability. Mm-hmm. And, and th- with that sense of it, I think you begin to understand how through uh, up to the modern era, the word art or artist described a craftsperson or an artisan. So there wasn't yet the category of fine artist or high artist uh, that we think is normal. Prior to the modern age, they would be known as an artisan. In that sense, you know, by training, Jesus was very much an artisan. He was a craftsman. Sure. He was an artist uh, in that he made things. But let's say in, in the more sort of narrow or strict or modern sense of the term, I would say to the extent that he is in the business of telling stories, as a storyteller, he is an artist in that sense. He is crafting stories that have sort of imaginative, um, in, you know, uh, world-building capacities. Like, what if the world were like this? And what if the kingdom were like that? And what if God were, you know, this merciful? And um, so all the stories, you know, sower, weeds, mustard, you know, seed, the Samaritan, the hidden treasure, net lost sheep, all those, he, he is a storyteller. And the, the point that I tell my students is that Jesus employs stories not because he is condescending to a, a primitive society that needed uh, you know, lesser forms of communication. And, and if they were just all more smart and capable and enlightened, he could have just used prose the whole time. But the point is that story uh, and, and poetry to the extent that it comes in like sort of through the door of the Psalms, story can do something, can say things, can figure out reality through figurative means in in a way that you couldn't say any other way. So he tells stories in a way that convey the truth of the character and nature of God, the character and nature of what it means to be human, the character and nature of the world, uh, not despite the story, not beyond the story, but through the story. So, you know, there are other things I think that Jesus does that could have an artistic element, but I think storytelling is, is the most obvious, you know, one. And, and and that's just an answer focused on his earthly life and ministry. You know, you know obviously we scope out to the second person of the Trinity, then we can say more. But in his life as ministry, yes, storytelling would, you know, earn him the title artist. That's true. Uh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a different, it's a difficult inroad f- for me at least in my faith tradition to this mm-hmm. conversation, I think, because, um, you know, I kind of represent an evangelical church and for us, normally speaking, I think, uh, you know, I 
broad, broad brush this, but we understand there's theology, we understand there's church tradition, right. but if it doesn't kind of come from the Bible itself, right. And you, uh, and not just being imposed upon it, but actually emanating from it, yeah. then it's like, well, then we, we can't really put a lot of stock into it. Sure. And so when you talk about Jesus, we have the kind of, we have the gospels in some respects yes. to kind of give us, uh, instances. And so I, I appreciate you drawing out the idea that his, he's a storyteller. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, uh, but also really like that little lesson at the beginning of the idea of kind of what I often call the arts and crafts, mm -hmm. not necessarily a dichotomy, but possibly mm -hmm. a spectrum. Right. Um, that's actually something that we run into as organizers of the arts of uh, fest in a kind of, especially from within the context of a, a church community yeah. and we really wrestle with it. And so like yeah. w w words change over time and they have multiple meanings right. over time. Right. So, when we think about art today, yeah, um, how should we think about that from within the context of a of a church? What's a healthy way to do that? So, I mean, we could talk about worship, which is actually primarily what your glimpses of the New Creation book does, is look sure. at how yeah. art, arts work in the context of of worship. But maybe just kind of one step back, mm -hmm. is there? A, this is such an esoteric conversation for a lot of people. Like, whoop de doo, what does it all mean? Right. But I'm like, right. really? So somebody. You know, some, somebody presents to me a, um, uh, we had an example where somebody presented a needlepoint mm -hmm. and it was a highly intricate needlepoint. Mm. Like I could not do it if you gave me a week and told me, you know, left me on a desert island and said I wouldn't be rescued if I didn't accomplish it. <laughs> like I'd be right. toast. Right. But we ended up wrestling and saying, because it was more of a something that you followed rather than something that you created, yeah. with, like you just that we right. like for, for this particular thing, we'd say right. this is more of a craft as it were yes. than right. an art. And it's yeah. hard to explain to people that in, that there's something like a, a message as it were, yeah. that's like encoded in art. And so maybe yeah. speak to that in terms of how Christians maybe want to think about art. Yeah. Uh, and you know, let me say a couple things and then answer your question. Um, the first is I was a pastor for ten, about 10 years full time. And one of my responsibilities was to oversee an arts ministry. And we had, uh, every summer, a three-week arts festival. And we wrestled with all of these issues. And, uh, you know, nothing new under the sun. <laughs> and uh, some things we learned, you know, uh, through trial and error. Other things we learned because there are, you know, wise friends that could come alongside us and help us figure out how, how not to make too many mistakes. But we, ha we had a whole range of artists in our congregation so 500 people in congregation 150 of them were artists wow. of all kinds that's a lot and so it yeah it was and it was a challenge to know how do you create a space for all of them to find a home within the community uh, and, and i think we eventually discovered that sunday morning is not the only way that an artist can you know flourish or find a place that there are other kind of settings and we did wrestle with like, is there a standard? Is there a definition that we'll work with in order to say, this is what we're wanting to encourage and support and foster. Not that these other things are not important, but they probably won't have a prominent place in, you know, visual art exhibits or, you know, other kind of performing arts opportunities. But I think that, let me just say the second thing about the, uh, um, the needlework um, I find that it actually occupies a very similar and tricky space 
with um, uh, symphony or orchestra orchestral musicians who are merely interpreting somebody else's original work. Now, obviously there's nothing merely about it because there is like this, a little bit more of an interpretive space of how a French horn is played and then how the conductor uh, is, is, um, wanting to create a certain sound that may not be a literal translation from the page. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying the orchestral musician is exactly the same as a needle, but it is sort of, there's sort of this spectrum. And that's mm-hmm. what we kind of wrestled with. Like is somebody who plays, you know, Bach on the piano, an artist, uh, because they didn't compose it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the answer is yes. And then of course, on what terms is it? Yes. So, um, again, these are things that I would, I I said when I was a pastor, these are now things that I say, you know, in the classroom, but I think it's helpful to understand two very fundamental, uh, functions that the arts perform the arts as sort of aesthetically concentrated things. I'll just say it that way. Uh, on the one hand, the arts are in the business, in, in the best and truest sense of this term, uh, of ornamenting the world. Uh, they're making it bright and beautiful, bright and interesting, bright and textured, bright and lined, bright and shaded, you know, uh, bright and lovely. I'm just saying bright. Um, <laughs> it's a work of the sort of illumining, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, God made a world which as far as we know, you know, to date, there are 7,000 kinds of apples. We do not need 7,000 kinds of apples in order to survive as a a species. All these apples have all kinds of of sizes and textures and, and flavors and colors. And so there's a sense in which artists are participating in that ornamenting or, uh, investing the world, the cosmos, the creation with aesthetic, um, um, you know, a, a aesthetically wonderful quality to it, which exceeds all requirements of utility. Mm-hmm. And so a needlepoint artist is delighting and participating in how it is that, you know, colors and, and kinds of threads can come together to make a, a really sweet image of your cat. Um, and, and, and I know that, you know, in sort of the, the very deadly serious, you know, so-called high art world, uh, that would be a source of embarrassment. I think for the Christian, it ought not to be a source of embarrassment. There's ought to be a place for all manner of, of simple, delightful things, because God has made a world in which there are, you know, a host of simple, delightful things that bring all kinds of pleasure to us at a fundamental aesthetic level. Mm -hmm. That's one, I think fundamental purpose or or task of of artists and art making and artists aren't the only ones who do that you know uh, uh, others uh, all of us by virtue of being made in the image god had creative creative you know aesthetic capacities so w- whether you're you know in the sciences or education or sports or politics you can bring an aesthetic quality to what you make or, or do in the world but on the other hand um, the arts are participating in, in, in what I would call meaning-making activities. Uh, they're not the only ones. You know, philosophers do that. Um, you know, politicians are trying to make sense of the world in which we live. Theologians are doing that. 
Um, but artists are also in that fundamental work of, of making sense of what it means to be human, what it means to uh, believe in, in an almighty God. Um, and so to the extent that, um, you know, crime and punishment as a novel or Harry Potter as a novel or, you know, um, the Odyssey uh, as a novel are ways in which uh, artists, novelists in this sense, are wanting to make sense of what does it mean to be human and they are allowing um, this thing called story to be plumbed to its depths and there's there are certain infrastructural qualities to a story like setting and 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 plot and characters and and motifs you know and language uh, and all these make sort of the in, like the machine works of what a story is and a, a novelist in this case um, ha have sort of this uncommon uh, capacity to take advantage of you know the machine works of a story in order to say this is what it means to be human as it were or musicians you, you take Adele uh, she writes lots of sad songs, famously it's sad songs. Scientists have studied uh, how it is that she constructs these sad songs. And, and you can break it down into its constituent musical parts. And, you know, it's like there's a certain progression. Her voice is doing certain things. And altogether, it makes you feel sad of a certain sort. Well, we're in Lent right now. And this morning, <laughs> during you know, my early morning labors, I was listening to Mozart's Requiem. That's a different kind of sad music. Uh, Iris Keening is a very different kind of sad. Or, you know, black spirituals are a different kind of sad. And all this sad music is a way to say, uh, I think my experience of sadness is, as it were, like this arrangement of sound. Is my sadness literally like Adele? Or literally Mozart's, you know, composition? No, it's not literally. It's, it's more than that. But all these different sad musics are able to name my sadness or your sadness or our sadness in a way that we think rings true. It's like, ah, I couldn't have said it any other way. Precisely. That's what that's what that kind of art is doing. Mm -hmm. So what right now we just finished in my class, you know, doing some historical perspectives. And we did, you know, a little bit of a study on on the movement, uh, in, at least in the Western world, towards art for art's sake. Mm -hmm. And what I tell my students is art for art's sake ought not to be pitted over against art for the sake of something else, you know, art in service of, of, um, the worship of God, art in mm -hmm. service of, you know, a political campaign or, or, uh, you know, the, the world cup, you know, theme or the Olympics are coming up, you know, the theme song, right. Um, art for art's sake, theologically understood is a way to say that the thing that, that is poetry down to its core, to its truest essence, or dance, or theater, or film, is 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 a is a God grace, God gifted thing. It's a, it's a, it's part of the the excessive grace of the world that we live in. That we're able to move our bodies. We're able to imagine that we are somebody else playing a role, and that enables you know humans or Christians to think to themselves, oh, that's that's how bad sin is. Those are the morality plays in the medieval era. Um, and, and God has gifted us with these capacities to make sense of our world through these aesthetic vehicles that we now call the arts. And that's a good thing too. 
in addition to like my iPhone is red and didn't need to be red, but there's something, you know, pleasurable. Like it's a, it's a lovely color and I enjoy looking at it. my shirt is black and it has certain buttons and it, it, you know, it holds in a certain way on my shoulders. There's an artistic design, you know, at work there, everything around me. Right. And I'm really grateful for that. And I want Christians to support and patronize those that are doing that in the same way that I want Christians to patronize those who have a sense of call to make art that maybe has more of this concentrated meaning making uh, feature or purpose to it. So I'll, right. I'll pause there because I know that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a big picture there, but happy that's, for you. That's good. Yeah. So, I mean, you talked about the idea that like uh, art for art's sake is kind yeah. of, sometimes we talk about, uh, so if art has any kind of utility other than enjoying it as art, right? it therefore can't be art. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. So that'd be like, uh, that is kind of maybe the extreme extension of yes, what exactly. the art world has come to. Uh, yeah. And people would say that that's, you know, good or bad you kind right. of said uh, right. that essentially those two things can live together yes. uh they're just kind of different kinds of art right liturgical art so art art that is made to be as a i guess what used uh -huh, which is sure. probably not the right word to to, to to be part of our worship services yeah, right by nature therefore can't be art for art's sake because it has no a purpose right like it has yeah a, it, it has is always serving an external purpose i think um um it was not Mark Chagall. It was a uh, um, who was it? it? Was a mid twentieth century artist. It's in my book somewhere, but I have a tired brain right now. He was commissioned. Who was it to, to create a chapel in France? Um, it, it'll come to me. Um, but he had a very even though most of his work was like in the art for art's sake, you know, category of visual and and, and, and sculptural work, he had a, a very clear sense that he was creating a chapel whose purpose was to serve um the activity of prayer. Now, obviously, you know, whatever whatever we do when we gather for corporate worship, whatever our tradition is, there's probably something that we do at the very beginning, there's things that we do in the middle, and there's something that we do at the very end. And the argument I make in the book is all art forms, at least in theory, can serve any one of these activities well to enrich it, to enhance it, to help us really understand, like, what does it mean to confess our sins? And the arts can come along and help us to go, oh, it's like this, uh, you know. So, so that's kind of, yeah, the case that I make that it isn't reductionistic, at least it ought not to be seen as a reductionistic activity. Like it's merely serving, I think, reading of scripture and prayer and preaching and confession and reconciliation and baptism, Lord's Supper, they can be enriched by the arts. And, and you know, as, as much as the human imagination can imagine it, we at least history would tell us there are many ways in which Christians have seen that the arts could become a complement, either through the visual, you know, um, arts, the plastic arts or the performative arts. And, um, but then there also was this kind of like nadir in at least our trunk. Well, my trunk of, of Christian history, I think yours as well. Um, right. where all of a sudden we went, yeah, but not so much though. Uh, it's like, we'll, right. we'll, we'll, we'll maybe pass on the arts for a while. So like there right. was this huge divestment of like, uh, yes. anything pretty. Right. Uh, so if, if it looked aesthetically, ple I mean, in, in part, we're looking at like the iconoclasm move sure. and that's when yeah. reformers came in and said, all of these images right. are 
they're idolatrous. Right. And they've, they've got to go. And so right. we end up with pretty, in, some, in, in many streams of Christianity uh, for a long time, right. pretty barren rooms, right. pretty classroom-centric rooms. Right. Um, and so there's reasons for that, um, sure. you know, theological reasons. Right. Uh, I was reading, so I'm, as a, I also have a group that I lead through the, the Bible, read the Bible in a year. Okay. Nothing revolutionary. Um, but okay, as yeah. we're doing that, it worked out so well that we yeah. ended up reading Exodus, the end of Exodus here, not that long ago, hmm. actually just a few days ago. So we're getting to, I'll probably say their names wrong, but Bezalel and Aholiab. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know Jordan Peterson uh, did a pretty significant and wonderful treatment of what he felt was no, I said Jordan Peterson. I, of course, meant the other much more Eugene. blessed member. The, of, of blessed memory. <laughs> I was like, wow, Eugene really? Well, actually, Jordan Peterson did do an incredibly deep dive in Exodus. And I wonder if I had the 16 hours available to listen to his oh, Daily man. Wire podcast on it, what he would have said about these chapters. But Eugene <laughs> Peterson Eugene, yeah. uh, said, you know, significant, just this idea of what it was, you know, the, the craft and the right. skill that these people right. had. But uh, more importantly, what I was trying to say is it's incredible the detail. Like, and this is before the temple. We're talking about just this little tent that was supposed to travel for 40 years through the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Just the detail of the the gold and, and the, the the different colored threads that are supposed to make their way into the tapestries. Like it's mm -hmm. not it's not haphazard. Mm -hmm. And I was reading somebody who seemed to suggest that, and I can't remember who it was, unfortunately, but they were th their impression was and I think that this is kind of from, a, frankly, a bit of a negative perspective, the way that they were talking about it, that this was for God to enjoy, that somehow mm -hmm. God needed to be surrounded by this splendor. Like he's, yes. he's, he's worthy yes. of it, and he wants to sit in this throne and look around and go, isn't it lonely? But of course, this is the same God who says, you know, I, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, and, <laughs> you know, I, I, don't, I don't need you to give me food. Right. I'm good, I'm good right. to go. So, so clearly, right. he wouldn't need us to make these things. He might want us to. Um, right. But either way, I've always kind of believed that it was for the people who were going into the worship space. That it was mm -hmm. more for them, mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't pretend to exactly know why. But right. there has to be some sort of purpose why God would have wanted aesthetically pleasing uh, spaces so that they would look beautiful. Yes. They would, they would smell right. beautiful. Like the idea right. of just having so much detail that goes into the way that it yeah. would smell. Right. I mean, right. not just the delicious barbecue, but the, the incense that has a special recipe, right? Sure. Like it yeah. doesn't, uh, my question is this, not only was Jesus an artist, but does Jesus, does, does God mm -hmm. care about this kind of aesthetic for mm -hmm. us in the mm -hmm. here and now? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I think the, the biblical evidence is rather strong <laughs> in favor of an affirmative answer. Sure. Again, if we scope out to all the scripture and we ask just, like, does God care about this? Then we join St. Augustine and look at all creation and, and say, behold, the book of God. Right. You know, you look at this book and you grasp what kind of God you are worshiping. And again, I think like when you look at the tabernacle and temple, it, it was structured as a kind of mini cosmos. It was intended to remind the people of Israel uh, of their truest home, which you know would have been Eden. There's no going back to Eden, but there was always like a future sense that at some someday 
it will all be, you know, whole again. And, uh, and so every time you go into those spaces, it was like, uh, you know, like a planetarium meets Epcot, you know, meets, you know, some kind of like, you know, diorama. And like you go in and you're like, oh, oh, this is our, tr this is where we truly belong. This is like either actual representations of Garden of Eden immaterial or symbolic representations and if that's the case if there is an integral relationship between the garden of eden and i talk about in the book how the garden is regarded as a kind of temple place it's described in temple-like language adam and eve are presented as priest-like figures and and ultimately all this temple language is just uh, you know, uh, a figurative way or euphemistic way to talk about home, God making his home with human beings. And eventually, you know, we will in the book of Revelation know that we are yet again at home. And so Eden is a home. Tabernacle Temple is a reminder of our truest home. And that home is has aesthetic qualities because that is the world that God has made. It is a creaturely created world that has sound and you know, uh, sight and scent and taste and, and touch and so on and so forth. If we're just looking at Jesus, uh, then I would say yes. And then I would want to say, what do we mean by aesthetic? In, in the book, I suggest that by aesthetic, at least what I mean when I use the language of aesthetic, I mean a cluster of four things. We're talking about the imaginative, the affective, the sensory and the metaphoric. That that's what kind of makes up the aesthetic dimension of, you know, our world, and so I would say, is Jesus does Jesus care about the imagination? I would say I I, I think there again is a lot of evidence to say he does because every time he says the kingdom of God is like that's an imaginative act. Like you're not going to see it empirically. You're going to have to imagine uh, what it is, and then even. The way that he represents himself as the Messiah requires an imaginative exercise because they are presuming that a Messiah is a certain way mm -hmm. and he keeps telling them stories to say the Messiah is actually somewhat like what you expect, but more so. Mm -hmm. And then the affective, I think a lot of Jesus' stories are intended to help his listeners to feel something that they had not felt before. You know, the story of the Good Samaritan. You're not the good guy, you're the bad guy. But it takes a story to get you to the place to go, oh, aha, I feel a certain compunction or regret or, um, you, know, um, you know, contrition, repentance towards my Samaritan, my enemy, right? But I had to feel um, that, and the story got me to that place of feeling. To the extent that Jesus' life is saturated with the Psalms, that he defines himself, you know, in many ways by the Psalms. And even there at the end of, of Luke 24, where he tells them, the disciples, that everything that was written about him in the law and the prophets, which as evangelicals are like, yes, he fulfilled the law and he fulfilled the prophets. But then Jesus says, everything that's written about me in the Psalms is fulfilled. And the Psalms are very much affective, you know, poetic vehicles for us to say to God things that we might not otherwise say. So imaginative, affective, and then the sensory, you know, Jesus takes dirt uh, and spit in order to make mud to heal a blind man in John 9. He doesn't have to do that. And there are plenty of places where he simply speaks and people are healed. Mm -hmm. But he, 
in whom all of creation, you know, is made. Uh, and he who was born of the flesh of Mary and who remembers that we are made of dust delights to use, you know, dirt. Uh, you know, he uses his own spit to touch the eyes of the blind man in, in Mark 9 and uses spit again on the tongue of the deaf in Mark 7. All these very sensory things um, all throughout the Gospel of John, all the signs are aesthetic, you know, experiences. The, you know, the water to wine and the walking on water and the feeding of the 5,000. Um, all that is very sensory rich. Mm. Not because, again, we're not smart enough or spiritual enough to get it just by a word. I mean, he could have thought, you know, if you want, of course, you can think anything to being. He doesn't have to be present physically for things to happen, right? But it delights him to use the physical world because he blessed it in the very beginning. And then the metaphoric, he, you know, he uses himself, uh, uh, all kinds of metaphors to say, I'm light, I'm a door, I'm a lamb, I'm a vine, I'm a shepherd. And he's not saying I am a shepherd or I am the good shepherd because what he really actually wants to say is that I can take care of you. If he wanted to say that, he could have said, I can take care of you. He is God. He is not in want for words, <laughs> but he understands that a metaphor includes sort of this uh, rich sort of, you know, constellation of associations and meanings. And when he says, I'm a shepherd, they're going to think Moses, and they're going to think David, and they're going to think the prophets, how they fail to be a shepherd, and how God, Yahweh, is a shepherd. And they're going to think about how, you know, even in ancient Near societies, there are certain ideas of shepherd. And they're going to think maybe, you know, the shepherds that come at birth. So it's all these things that use uses metaphors, not because it is sort of this, you know, unfortunate communicative, you know, form, but actually you can just, he understands there are certain things you can't say any other way than through metaphor. That being said, imaginative, effective, sensory metaphor. I see that all throughout his ministry and it leads me to conclude, yes, he cares about aesthetic things. And we're not graduating from aesthetic things. We're not graduating to this sort of disembodied heavenly place. Our, our true destination is the new creation, where once again, um, you know, we will be immersed in a, 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 an aesthetic world that will be um, freed from the stain and warping force of sin. Mm -hmm. And right now, between those two eras... Um, we get to trust that God delights to use aesthetic things to help us to know and love him and help us to know and love our neighbors and help us to know and love ourselves because we're supposed to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. <laughs> um, so the bare walls uh, could be sort of a, a, a deficit, you know, way of seeing things or a defective way of seeing things. I don't have a problem with, with, with white, like the use of, Paint, you know, like the simplest Amish, you know, have very simple things, but it's gorgeous. It's aesthetically very, very excellent, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I, I have lots of friends who are in Reformed churches who make very rich use of the color uh, of of light or white, you know, um, to tell stories. So mm -hmm. it's not a poor thing to 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 not look like the Cathedral of Notre Dame in France. It's like all all aesthetic data can be repurposed. Mm -hmm or become vehicles, God grace vehicles to tell the story of who we are as a congregation, the story that we're entering in through worship. 
Um, yeah. So those are things I, I guess I would say. That's that. huge. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it because they're rooted in theological understandings. So like um, the oh man, I'm just trying to process uh, some of the things you said. <laughs> For somebody who's tired, you can still flow. Um, yeah. I mean, the idea that I think you say in the book. Um, one of the things that I heard you saying, especially in the first couple of chapters over and over again, is that, and you even just said it there, like ideas, um, they're kind of nothing as it were, they're important, but they're kind of nothing until they become in, incarnated. Yeah. Right. And so arts are not just the thought processes or the feelings, they are tangible things. You can touch yeah. them, you can, you can smell them, you can, you, right. can just, you can look at them. You can't look at ideas, but you can look at paintings or sculptures, right? Yeah. So like there is, a, to use a churchy word, there is a, a sacramental yeah. quality to arts right. where they take, right. they take something and they become, I mean, I don't want to put this yeah. uh, in, incorrectly, but like they kind of do become a means yeah. of, of grace. They become a yeah. vehicle of meaning right. Right. more, more than, than talking alone uh, unesthetic, unguided, uh, yeah. uh, uh, talking can. So like, w I appreciate what you said, the idea of the like, feeding of the 5,000 and the water to wine. Those are two things that to me all of a sudden lead towards what I, I have a, a dim feeling and, and no real evidence towards, which is that the, um, the Eucharist mm -hmm. is potentially one of the most, mm, it, it is, it is an artistic moment can yeah. we call it a piece of, i mean it has generated untold pieces <laughs> yeah. of art right like the, the amount the amount of the <laughs> amount of paintings and, and right. stories and songs and but in and of itself um the the idea that that jesus said that this is his body yeah and you know we can let other people quibble and quabble over whether it right. becomes or doesn't right. but just whether it's whether it's only metaphor, at the very least, it is right. Right. a metaphor, mm -hmm. and it's a metaphor that they can then smell, mm -hmm. touch, mm -hmm. and taste. Right? It mm -hmm. has this like incredible rich meaning to it, and that yeah. this is this is my, my blood, right? Yeah, yeah, you can see exactly. It's, so it, it does all of the things. <laughs> um, it's not encased in behind right. glass right. and you know able to withstand uh, cans of soup being thrown at it or whatever. <laughs> But it is uh, it is an opportunity. It it is it goes beyond it goes beyond just didactic aesthetics. Yes, there's something about it that is right. like it, right. it's more than it's the sum of its parts. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, tell, before I go ahead and share that with anybody in a public setting, tell me all the ways that could be heretical. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, 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 well, I'm an Anglican, so uh, I would be the last person to disagree with you. Right now. <laughs> um, I grew up evangelical and I'm still, you know, I know the term is a little bit wonky these days, but, you know, happily uh, evangelical. It is my heritage and I understand, you know, uh, both the gifts and the challenges uh, of my tradition and I have a great love uh, for them. And I think that's why I do what I do. I, I, I write books because I, I really would love to be helpful um, as well as respectful. Um, and I don't want, I mean, whatever. Uh, I'm inviting people into something, and I, I hope they trust that the invitation is genuine. My tradition probably would have, like as a child, probably would have said somewhat forcefully that the material, physical world is either an obstacle to an experience of the grace, presence, and power of God at worst, or 
opaque. Right? Mm-hmm. Like it's like sort of there, but it's just like a concession. And, you know, what really is to be privileged is our heart and our, our mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's a rather unbiblical way of understanding ourselves. I wrote an entire book to try to make that case. Body of Praise, you can pick it up, right? Is that, uh, is that the one? Is that the one? There you go. There you go. Yeah, so it's, this won't be much of a video, but anyway, it'll be linked. It'll be linked. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, body of Praise. Um, and so I, I think the, the case that I try to make in that book is that the material world, physical things, the physical cosmos um, is blessed and graced and capacitated by God in the very beginning to be um, the place from which we, we as human beings would know and love God. There, there, it, we don't exist as ones and zeros. That is not God's good purposes for us our telos, our eventual, you know, true end is not to be angels, neither to be beasts. Uh, We are, you know, sort of these amphibious kind of creatures, but creation is our home and new creation will be our eventual home and it will be physical and material. And you see all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, how God delights to use physical, material things. So much so... (laughs) That he decides to become it, uh, and not sort of it. You know, the language from John one is is sarx from the Greek, which is flesh, and soma is the other word that is used elsewhere, which is you know body. But he becomes fleshy flesh, like as fleshy flesh as you can get, and um, and it is his delight that we encounter, certainly in his ministry, that people encounter God, God, very God, true God, light of light. You know, true God from true God in the person of Jesus in his own flesh. And, and it's he, he feels so, so, uh, so much utter delight in it that he rises from the dead in this resurrected flesh. And uh, and and everybody wants a piece of it. And he says, go for it. You know, touch me and see, I am not a ghost. Uh, and then later, obviously, in first John, you know, that which we have seen heard, touched, tasted. Uh, this we present, this is, that's the life. And so the arts are very physical things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as physical things, as material things, they, they like participate in the ground of this graced physical world that God has made. Uh, and so, so it's like they're downstream from what is like most primary, which is the physical world, the created world is already graced already capacitated, already blessed to be something through which we would know and love God. Uh, And we see that in the Lord's Supper. Every time you take it, you'll have some sense of, you know, encountering him. How you love one another in an embodied way, you will be able to perceive me. You will sense the grace of God through me, you know, and, and acts of justice and peacemaking and so on and so forth. So I would say, yeah, on that sort of line of thought, yes, the, the arts can be thought of or talked of as these sacramental vehicles. Now, obviously, I'm going to make a slight distinction between what I would call capital S sacrament and small s sacramental. And so the capital is going to be like, you know, Lord's Supper, baptism, whatever else you know, might want to add to that. There's something like maybe unique that we'd want to preserve there, mm-hmm. but that we live in a sacramental universe I would say 
Yes, and if by that we mean that through physical material things, somehow, some way, we encounter the life of God, the presence of God, the love of God, the grace of God. I mean, Genesis Revelation is saying yes, 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 and amen all the way through. And the arts are just doing their own unique thing to enable us to, to have a moment of encounter with God or, or some other thing that is true about the world that God has made that would hopefully nourish and heal and redeem and reconcile. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth remembering that whether you have two or seven or 11 teens <laughs> sacraments in your tradition, as far as I, as far as I know, most of them, maybe all of them end up having some kind of like physical quality that is yeah. transmit that, that, that is, that is not just transmitted, but that is used to transmit right as metaphor, as it were right. the meaning, right? Yes. Like, so it's just the idea of chrismation or like anointing. Right. Like these are, every everyone has something that it's not just like someone stands there and just merely says words to you right. something physical a ring is exchanged yes. a robe is put on like right. there's just something where they use physical instantiations yeah uh to 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 make us know that we're physical right instantiations yeah. <laughs> right we're beings uh okay so i only have a couple minutes left of your time so uh two artists two artists um I think part of the part of the struggle that I have, like you know, at the end of our arts fest, we'll have a, a conversation where we'll bring three or four people together and uh-huh. go whoop de do. What is art? You know, let's talk about art. <laughs> let's talk about art. And for, uh, the reason we'll do that on Saturday as part of our uh, session and not on Sunday morning is because at yeah. the end of the day, not everybody in our church is or considers themselves to be artists. As yeah. you've said, all right. of them have the ability to bring aesthetic beauty into the world, yeah. to be themselves right. uh, on ramps towards right. wanting to know more. And really the greatest aesthetic of all is living a life full of the Holy Spirit and yes. being a loving, peaceful, yes. patient, kind, and good right. person. Nobody right. likes the aesthetics of anything else more than that. You could, It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't matter how good your cooking is if you're not a nice person. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> but, but now just kind of like ooh, narrowing in yes. on people who make things who make things that we consider to be art right what's at least one nugget you're somebody who has your finger on the pulse of not only the liturgical world but you're also kind of understanding this kind of broader cultural context Mm -hmm. at least in in the southern united states but i think in north america even though we have uh, we definitely have geographical and regional differences. We sure. are kind of a global village in some yeah. respects now, thanks right. to all kinds of things. So right. you're reading the tea leaves and you're saying, for those of you who are artists and also kind of want to follow Jesus well with your art, yeah. how, how would you say, here's not just a way to write, Jesus loves me, this I know, mm. but to create engaging and, and um, cross-cultural yeah. content right. uh, for the world. Yeah, I, I think what I would say is commit yourself as much as it is possible and different seasons of life require different things or, or impose different limitations uh, to continue to hone the craft. Study it, study it, study it, study it. And, and as a companion to that, immerse yourself in the tradition. If you're a poet, musical theater artist, a filmmaker, modern dancer, l- learn the tradition, uh, who your forebears, you know, what have they said and what have they done? Um, apprentice yourself to them, uh, listen to them. You don't have to do everything that they say, but in humility, um, submit yourself to the tradition, uh, 
and you'll discover that it's a complicated tradition. Uh, not everybody sees eye to eye, but I think there's a lot of wisdom to be gained in immersing yourself in the tradition simultaneously to honing the craft. How do you hone the craft? Well, you just ask yourself, what counts for excellent craftsmanship when it comes to the making of a symphony or you know the making of a play mm -hmm. and th there are people that are that are masters at their craft mm -hmm. and if you're an apprentice apprentice yourself if you're a journeyman as it were you know be a journeyman um and 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 surround yourself with those who are committed to the craft itself mm -hmm. and then thirdly um i would say in in community with both artists who would be kindred of faith and and non-artists who might be kindred of faith um in within that kind of communal matrix like you want to be with artists that are of your own kind but not only because i, I think that could become very insular and so you want to be with people who are not artists, but who do love God very much. So want to love their neighbors, want to be faithful in this time and, you know, the places in which God has set them. But be a part of that community um, and trust that the Holy Spirit will use, you know, that little social matrix to, to help you discern, um, you know, what am I to be on about? You know, what, what what's the the fire in my bones, you know, is, is there a place to use Frederick Buechner's language where my joy and the pain of the world intersect? Mm. Uh, and, and I think yeah, at the end of the day, all of these sort of maybe the other three things that I'm suggesting have a relationally rich component to it. Even if you're in, in your studio or whatever that may be, you know, on your own writing or making music, hopefully you're still, you know, in transit in conversation with with other artists but you know historically back you know the present sort of excellent craftsman and then and then women and then community you know that that's both kindred to you but artistically but also unlike you you know moms and dads and aunts and uncles and uh and, and farmers and economists and school teachers and and just be a part of that community and 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 say hey these things are on my mind and heart and you know, what do you think and how does it resonate with you? And, and you know, and not that at the end of the day, you don't have some personal conviction. This is what I ought to do. And mm -hmm. not that you always seek permission, you know, or that people always be excited. But hopefully, hopefully, really, as a Christian, you have a really robust ecclesiology that enables you to be in in life giving fellowship with the saints across time and space. So, you know, global south, global north, present, past, and Christian and non-Christian, you know, to, sure. to be in, in conversation with folks that are not in the faith, but maybe care about the craft as much as you do. I think those, you know, be things I'd say. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but think that that sounds an awful lot like just being a good Christian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're like, so, so actually, like actually, actually pr practice it, right? So don't just believe it, but practice it. Um, immerse yourself. Don't just think that you can come up with a de novo, but look into what the tradition actually gives to you and then be in community with people who aren't just like you, but who are, who are like you, right? Like, so, okay. So we all, at the end of the day, David Taylor saying that we actually are all 
artists. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's really good. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Hey, listen, I deeply appreciate your time today, and yeah. uh, really really grateful for your work in this stuff. I mean, it's well, it's you. a it's a it's a well, uh, not just for myself, but for like tons and tons of people. So keep well, keep you. on keeping on in the space, my man. Thank you, Mark. It, it is always, uh, honestly, I mean this, It's it makes me so happy to meet people like you that are doing what you're doing uh, because it reminds me I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And, and and God has sort of faithful people placed in all around the world that I know of. And it's just like, man, it does take a village to do this thing well. So it's like, it's nice to find fellow uh, uh, people in my tribe, you know, that you're in my tribe. So bless you for doing the work. And um I hope this, you know, festival is a wonderful success and very encouraging. Praise God. Thanks, man.